Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This is a special South by Southwest episode recorded at the Founders Organization unofficial South by Southwest event called the Initial Taco Offering, a full day of crypto talks and tacos. During this session, I interviewed Michael Casey and Paul Vigna, co-authors of the recently published book, The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. Michael is a senior advisor at the MIT Media Lab and a former Wall Street Journal reporter. Paul is a current Wall Street Journal reporter who covers crypto full-time. We have a great and wide-ranging discussion on everything from the SEC subpoenas to how crypto could be used to solve problems like climate change. Thank you to the Founders Organization for hosting the initial taco offering, and thank you to everyone who came out. This special South by Southwest episode of Unchained is brought to you by Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on Earth. Today, Preciate is recognizing a group for a big achievement in the crypto space. Who will be recognized today for their achievements? Stay tuned to find out. This episode is brought to you by QuantStamp. QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations, they're about to finish Y Combinator's Winter 18 batch. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. Well, thanks for coming, everyone. Um, I'm going to be releasing this as a special episode of my podcast, Unchained, special South by Southwest episode. I hope you guys are all having a great South by Southwest. Um, why don't we just start with Michael, um, just describing who you are, what you do, and then we'll turn to Paul. Yep. Hello, everybody, um, and thanks for having us uh, to, to Anoop and the rest of the Founders Foundation and Laura for putting this on. Um, yeah, so I'm Michael Casey. I am a senior advisor at the Digital Currency Initiative, which is uh, at MIT Media Lab. Uh, I was formerly a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, uh, where I worked with Paul and then just decided that I had to get out and get my teeth into this this thing. So about three years ago, I left the journal and uh, and uh, joined MIT. But this and is you went over to the dark side? Went over to the dark side, yeah. I mean, I, I left, now I'm actually also an advisor to, I'm the chairman of the advisory board at Coindesk as well as one of my, one of the hats that I wear. So I still keep my hand in journalism indirectly. I can't believe that was three years ago. Yeah. I can't believe that this microphone isn't working. Uh, I can't believe that that was three years ago. God, it doesn't seem like that long. Time. Yeah, it was. Blockchain time is usually... It's like 10 years. 10 years of Yeah, time. oh my Basically. God. Yeah. And so you guys are out with an... Oh, sorry, Paul. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I am Paul Vigna. I am still a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I've been writing about Bitcoin since 2013, since like the spring of 2013. Uh, Mike and I have written now two books together. And I have stayed at the Journal, and I am somebody who just finds this uh, entire sector and industry 
fascinating from the perspective of somebody who's looking for stories to write, from the perspective of somebody who's outside of it and trying to tell interesting stories for an audience. And I just think it's absolutely amazing uh, the the potential of the technology, which I think is great, the scams and, and frauds, which I'm sorry, they're good stories. So I think those are interesting too. I mean, I just find every aspect of this really fascinating. And I am not looking to leave the journal like Mike did because that's where I am. I, I like telling these stories. So you guys are out with this new book. It's your second book you had previously written, The Age of Cryptocurrency. The new book is called The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. The, promises, the title promises kind of a lot. Um, why did you choose this name for your book? Uh, yeah, both of them are a little provocative. In fact, I was—I was—I think I'm wearing it as a bit of a badge of honor. But when I put out the announcement on Twitter that the book was out, one one guy replied and said, "Worst title ever." So, um, and I think the reason why people think that is because that they they think they're we're making this hyperbolic, you know, hand wavy statement. That, we are. Well, we are. <laughs> we are. Oh, okay. Of course we are. Uh, yes, yes. We, you can actually the blockchain will uh, basically uncover the mysteries of the universe. It is the path to absolute truth. That is exactly what we're trying to say. Right. We'll all reach Nirvana on the blockchain. <laughs> we will reach Nirvana on the blockchain. Right. No, look, I mean, and people are concerned that, like, you know, that, that we might be misrepresenting the fact that data that is in, in, entered into a transaction that will be reported immutably is always going to be true. And that's also not what we're talking about. What the title refers to is this concept of consensus truth. And it's actually as important a form of truth as absolute truth because when we reach an agreement around what the numbers are, and I, I keep using this line, it's like, who knows exactly what absolutely truthfully, the US GDP is, right? It's always an estimate. It's an estimate based on the consensus of what we agree upon. And the process by which we've arrived at that consensus, this shared truth, has traditionally been done by a centralized institution, a ledger keeper. Now we have a machine, a decentralized machine, that is enabling this consensus to arrive at hopefully you know, a more reliable fashion where there is a broader agreement and whereas there is also you know, this, this sense that it can't be tampered with afterwards. So in that well, sense, it's a truth machine. But I don't know if I know where you're going with that. If you're talking about GDP, like, there are certain authorities around that, right? Like You wouldn't uh, calculate that in a, a decentralized fashion, would you? No, 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 no. I was just using GDP. I was just saying that so many numbers that we use in finance, so, so many, whether it's economic data, whether, whether it is you know, corporate results, the, the process of determining what a fact is in finance when we say, okay, what is Apple's you know, earnings per share, right? It's an estimate uh, that, was, that, that, that was gathered together by a bunch of accountants and we all kind of come to an agreement once the auditors have checked it out that that's what it is. But it's, it's, a, it's a process of consensus. So it's nothing to do with GDP per se. It's a, it's, I'm just trying to say numbers uh, that we use for the purposes of entering into economic uh, contracts and agreements come from this process of consensus. That's what they do. Right, and, and, and what we think is, what we feel is, the reason we called it the truth machine is because we feel that this technology will, will provide people with a way to get closer to objective truth than we have had before. Not that you would, you would necessarily get to complete objective truth, but it's, just, it's, it's a better way to get at the truth, to get closer to the truth than we have had before. And that's why we called it the, you know, in some ways this operates as a truth machine. It helps you to discern the truth. And uh, the whole point about the future of everything, which is, yeah, that's a, a very broad title and, and it's very hyperbolic, but there are very, very broad potentials. And uh, there's a very broad potential you could make the argument right now that there is nothing you could 
absolutely cross off and say blockchain could not help this area, this industry. So in some ways, it is the, the future of everything. Yeah, and the other thing I would just say is that you know, this is dealing with record keeping. Record keeping is fundamental to human existence. Like, in fact, you know, the Code of Hammurabi in the, you know, the early moments of Mesopotamia in, in Babylon is the first recorded form of writing. First, first, you know, and, and that became the foundation of that civilization. So record keeping as a, as a the process by which we enter into exchange is very, very important for how we form money, but how we form all sorts of agreements. In that sense, it covers everything, right? It's, it's, and that's, that's kind of what we're saying. I mean, there, it's, you can't get away. Once you start operating with one person with another person, one company with another company, there has to be this process of figuring, okay, what do we agree on and what the transactions are? So, yeah, it covers everything. And, and, and now that we've got the title over the way, can we go to the inside <laughs> flap? Is that how we're doing this? We're going to do everything? <laughs> well, that actually... Like, that was the title. Now the, the inside title. flap. <laughs> right, right. Instead of the inside flap, let's go to what everybody's wondering about these days, which was, is regulation. I was really kidding. You <laughs> broke the news on the SEC subpoenas. Uh, I broke one piece of news. I mean, I mean, yeah, look, I think the... It's, it would have been obvious that the SCP, SEC was looking at this for a long time and, and querying a lot of companies, whether they're sending out actual subpoenas or requests for information. Uh, I mean, look, yeah, we, we wrote the first story just saying that the SCP, SEC is doing this on a very wide level. But, I mean, you know, I think it's obvious that they've been doing this. I don't you know. Yeah, it's, we broke it, but, you know. And what do you think is the significance of the, of the subpoenas? I think... Well, okay, so now we're talking about the ICO market, and I, I think you have a market where this is a really fascinating new thing, this idea of, and, and you guys all heard Rob, I don't know if you all heard Rob talking in the last session about this, but the, the idea of this ICO or token offering or whatever you want to call it, I think it's fascinating, the idea that companies can raise money, they can have access to capital that they never had before, that can allow them to do things that they couldn't do before. I think it is also highly speculative, uh, a, a lot of it is doomed to failure because these are bad projects that are kind of slapdash put together. And I think, like anything, investing is has inherent risks. And the job of the SEC is to create the the most level and the most transparent investing arena that they can. I think that's what they're trying to do. And I think they're trying to do that with the ICO market. So uh, they're trying to figure out what is this token? What is this thing? Is this a security? Is it a utility token? Uh, is there? Can there be such a thing as a utility token? So I think they are trying to just kind of wrap their arms around what looks new and try to figure out, and, and this is where it can, can become kind of complicated is, do the traditional laws and rules and regulations that we have, do they fit this new world? Can we figure out what they are? And if they don't, are we going to come up with new rules and regulations so that we can ensure that this is a level, transparent playing field and you don't have a lot of fraud? Because, you know, I, I think, look, fraud is fraud and fraud is bad. And I think fraud is really bad for people who are in this field who are trying to do this honestly and trying to do this well. So that's where I think the SEC is going with all this. And so the way that you just described that sounds very measured and like there's no reason. To I'm really a journalist, it. Laura. Of course it was measured. <laughs> well, so in I kind of like the, amongst the everyday people, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt, FUD, as they call it. A lot of people heard, oh, maybe 80 subpoenas and they freaked out. But it seems like you're just saying they're gathering information. Of course, they want to, you know, do take well, some action. If if. 
if you have been subpoenaed by the SEC, they are investigating you. Does that necessarily mean you did something wrong and they're going to come down on you and charge you with something? No, of course it doesn't. I think from our reporting, what we're seeing is that they are sending out some subpoenas. They are also sending out requests for information. And, and again, the SEC, I have, I'll tell you, the SEC has not really commented to us directly, so we don't have on-the-record comments from the SEC. You're asking me for my opinion. My, my opinion is that they are looking at two things broadly. They are looking at frauds, outright frauds, and we've seen them, we've seen them crack down on a number of them, and I think they will continue to do that. And they are trying to figure out what this new market is, what it looks like, and how it should be regulated. So I think they're kind of moving on two tracks there. So can this, you actually define a subpoena? Because I thought that was a request for information. Well, you know, it's funny, because uh, I'm not our SEC reporter. I'm a Bitcoin reporter. I've learned this recently, too. They can do this in two ways. They can, one, send you a letter, which is a request for information. You can choose whether or not to reply to it. If you reply to it, you are still under obligation to tell the truth. If you lie, you can be held liable for that. But you don't necessarily have to answer it. If you don't answer it, of course, the next thing they're going to do is they're going to subpoena you, and then you absolutely have to answer that. So it's kind of a shade of a difference, but but it, it's it, it it's an important distinction, I think. When you're under when you're subpoenaed, you are being investigated without a doubt. Oh, interesting. Because I spoke with somebody who used to work at DOJ and said at least at DOJ, if you're being subpoenaed, it actually means you are not the target. So it sounds like for at SEC, it's different. Uh, again, I'm not the SEC reporter, so I don't want to speak about it and say I'm the final okay. authority. But, I mean, my understanding is that if they subpoena you, they're investigating you. Okay. Which right. is what our well, SEC reporter so told me. So We'll put a pin in that, and maybe I can come back later and find out exactly what that means. Um, but I just want to also hear generally, like, what's your take on how the regulators have been proceeding so far? Like, you know, judging on what they've been doing. Okay, I'll, I'll be quick because Mike isn't getting a lot of airtime here. I mean, I think they are approaching this as constructively as they can. I think I see he's shaking his head already. The one thing we really we re yeah, we, we do we really disagree on this. But uh, I, I think they are they are addressing they are approaching this as objectively as they can. I don't think their intent is to just shut down the entire market. I think they're trying to figure out how they can can best address it. That, that, that's how I think their approach is. Michael? Well, I think it's, you know, this is the classic Damocles sword approach, right? That, I mean, where you just sort of leave this sort of doubt hanging over their, their heads. And, you know, by fear, nobody does anything. Um, and, and that's the way the SEC always works, by the way. I mean, they, they've, they've never been an institution to sort of give very clear statements. They like to leave this ambiguity. I think the problem with that is that now that we're dealing with a brand new technology and a completely different way of conceiving of how we actually, you know, build systems of exchange, uh, network effects and the like, where tokens become not only you know, this fundraising vehicle, but this important component of a utility function, then that level of uncertainty is problematic, right? Because you can see how it might work. If you all agree this is obvious a security, there's a whole world out there, a very normal world of equity deals, and the SEC says, oh, I'm not going to be a little bit vague on this, and they just keep everybody on their toes. But there's already an established regulatory market, there's all this sort of structure around it. But doing it now, as we are still trying to work out what the thing is, I think it's problematic. And it's problematic because the signaling has become more draconian. They started out making stronger statements about their, about their willingness to promote innovation, that they thought this was a very interesting technology. They wanted to, to be constructive around that. They've come to a much 
I think, harder position on it. Um, and you've got, you know, companies that are saying, I'm just not going to deal with Americans. I can't, I can't sell to Americans. And the thing that worries me most is that they seem to be signaling that they don't believe literally it, that a token, there's such a thing as utility, that there could not be a utility token. Wait, wait, what makes you think that? The way that the SAF, the, the way that the, they've approached the SAF concern, right, this, they shouldn't have concerns necessarily about the SAF. I mean, it's not to say there's huge discussion about whether the SAF is a viable instrument, but the notion that the SAF is a is a problem isn't really an SEC issue because it's being sold as a security to accredited investors. It could be a really crappy idea for those those investors, but that's not the concern right now, right? And so what they're signalling by saying we don't think this this whole framework makes any sense is that the that that most is my interpretation again. They don't tell us very clearly what it is, so this is just interpretation that they are signalling that. The whole concept of a utility token that can come out of that is difficult. And I've heard this from others as well. And, there, and therefore, now you've got this up against what Wyoming is doing by deliberately trying to carve out a space and say, this is a utility token and this is the legislation that will back that. And at least if we have that, right, we can start to say, let's recognise the reality. There's a, there's a whole chapter in the book called The Token Economy, which talks about you know, the power of being able to embed into our mediums of exchange this this mechanism by which we can align incentives with the public good. I think that's a really powerful idea that you know, we, we have a lot of work to do before we can make it work, but I would hate to kill the prospect of something so promising uh, by, by sending these really draconian signals in this vague way. So I think we need clarity. I think that... Um, you know, it, it, this might be uh, an opportunity for the SEC to step out of their usual MO and, and, and give some clarity to that very point itself. Yeah, I just, I, I, I've said this before, but I don't envy the regulators. I can understand why they want, would want to go through this sort of like information gathering phase. Um, because as we saw with the bit license in New York in 2013, 2014, clearly that regulation was done like well before um, the space was fully even developed. And that's had a really bad effect. And so I do understand maybe why the SEC is taking its time. I do understand on the other side why that's also kind of to the detriment of these teams that want to um, pursue, you know, these innovations and, um, it per, you know, realize their dreams. And yet at the same time, it's like, oh, shit, what if we do that and end up in jail? So I totally get all that. I, I just feel like what they're trying to do is just walk this tightrope that it just feels like almost impossible. So I can see it on either side. Um, but my personal take, and this is actually something um, that happened at a, at a conference I did with some members of the SEC, which was very fascinating. This was right after the, the chairman first said something like, oh, every token I've seen is a security. Mm-hmm. And it was such a contrast in um, tone from the Dow report, which I felt was very measured and kind of like seemed to delineate, oh, like these are um, virtual virtual currencies, as they call them, air quotes, uh, by the way, for podcast listeners. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then uh, what, what they were saying were uh, securities like the Dow token. Um, and so I said something about it to one of the SEC people, and she was like, oh, but the way he phrased it was every token I've seen. And then she goes, how many has he seen? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. And so she kind of seemed to be sort of like walking back what he had said. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe like you know, they felt like he had spoken out of line, but then, you know, later 
at the hearing, we heard him say that again. And so then I was kind of like, okay, like maybe he's signaling that he wants to take a more draconian approach, but perhaps within the agency there's agreement. I'm sure there is, you know, just even as there is amongst us. Um, but yeah, so I think that's like the biggest question that remains is like, I mean, to, to me personally, maybe you guys disagree, but what do you think are the biggest regulatory questions that need to be resolved? Well, that one, I mean, well, yeah, that one's a pretty big one. Find a utility token, um, and can, can it exist? I'm really surprised that they have come down against the SAF because the SAF could be a way for them to think about resolving this problem. Wait, and, and are you certain about that? I mean, cause... because it's look, I don't know. You did the reporting on it. There is some concern about the SAF that's in that in that in that story. I've uh, yeah, certainly heard that that's 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 being questioned. And so, you know, if that's the case, and, and it's a legitimate question. Well, it's a legitimate question from a perspective of whether or not the, 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 the token at the end of it is going to be delivered, i.e., is it a I, I, look, I, I, I think a big part of the problem in this is that last year, and it's continued this year, this has become a, a out-of-control speculative investing mania. And I, if you had a situation where, you know, you had companies raising reasonable amounts of money and you didn't have this kind of mania to create these projects overnight that, you know, it's basically just a, a plagiarized white paper and two dudes putting up a website and raising $30 million. If you had a situation where this was all moving at a much slower pace, maybe you would have a situation where regulators were, were looking at it differently. But when you have a situation where companies that didn't exist a year ago, six months ago, two months ago, are raising tens of millions of dollars for products that don't exist, that stinks of speculative investing mania, and the SEC is going to look at that very hard, and they have to. So I think part of it is if this had developed differently, you might have a more measured response from regulators. What I think actually is the most interesting thing, and given the way our Congress works these days, is not going to happen. But I would love to see the federal lawmakers, U.S. Congress, address this entire industry on a federal level, like, kind of like what you had in Japan. I mean, Japan addressed this on a federal level and put in rules around the entire industry. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think the way this develops in Japan is going to be really important. I, I wish we had lawmakers here who were, were interested in doing that. I know we have a couple of lawmakers in Congress. We have a blockchain caucus. But I mean... You know, I don't see U.S. Congress acting on this anytime soon, which puts the regulators at the various agencies kind of in a bind. They have to address it from their perspective. They have to, you know, whatever their remit is, their little part of the world, they have to address it. So you have different regulators looking at this from different angles and calling it different things, and I, th I think it's kind of a mess. I would totally agree with yes. that. I agree with that. And so that's why. On, wow. We're back on, we're back we're on, back on, on track. It's only that one issue. The rest of the book is very yeah. harmonious. Every it's, once in a while, Mike and I have one, one or two yeah, contentions. They, 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 they say that a good, like, a good you know, panel is one where there's some, you know, a little a, a, friction. Little friction. Little, yeah. So it's rare that the co-authors are the source of that. But okay. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we'd love to have that addressed at that level. Yeah. I mean, but I the other thing to say about this, though, of course, is, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, no. There, there, there is Japan. There is there are Swiss, right. Swiss solutions. There is Swiss Singapore, right? And this is a very mobile technology. We all know how many people are in Zug for this reason, right? So, does the U.S. care? Maybe they don't. Maybe they're just a tiny industry. Why do I, why do I care about being part of this sort of new innovative movement? Well, we obviously think that they should care about it because this is you know a big part of what the future is going to look like, and the U.S. doesn't want to be a part be be apart from that. Um, and so, you know, and I think that 
there will come moments when fairly big developments that have uh, an impact on the US are going to happen. I think when China uh, has a digital fiat currency, which it will have at some point, um, suddenly there's going to have to be this scramble around what the US is doing within this technology, and it might not be so happy to have seen all these developers disappear to Zoog. Oh, interesting. But, I mean, I don't see fiat currencies as being uh, on, on blockchains. I don't see them as being a big threat to decentralized. No, but I'm not talking. I'm just oh, talking okay. about, like, so you can't make a decision around anything, distributed ledgers, you know, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, in isolation from anything. Right? One of the reasons why Venezuela has done its pay, all these things are manifestations of Bitcoin in some form. They're completely centralized. They are by no means uh, in any way like Bitcoin, but they are, a, they are a product of all of the sort of global competitive pressures that have been emerging around this thing. The most important thing Bitcoin has done in that sense uh, is put sort of raise the idea to central banks about how things might be different. Every central bank around the world is exploring digital fiat, fiat currency now precisely because of Bitcoin. And they are also talking about distributed ledger functions behind this. A lot of them are trying to build some of the modeling, obviously permissioned, around that. The bigger issue, though, is that, um, you know, that, that digital fiat currency will have smart, prop, smart contract uh, properties within it to, to effectively bypass the dollar. And that's going to be a major threat to the U.S. You and I talked about this once before. Right, right. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, you wrote an essay about this, too. I did, yes. Yeah, about China, about how you think that this will be a play to kind of knock the U.S. dollar off global. Yeah, and I think it's absolutely feasible, and it's certainly something that China would want to do. China talks all the time about, you know, wanting to internationalize the renminbi and, uh, you know, remove the dollar from what was once called this sort of exorbitant privilege, as people called it. Um, and the way that I think they would do it is that um, there would be a digital renminbi, there would also be a digital ruble, and through an atomic swap um, and a smart contract, you would lock in the rate um, through, through the, the currencies themselves and effectively, therefore, avoid the, the exchange rate risk that is carried over time when you enter an importer and an exporter enter into an invoice. So now you've got the importer and exporter on either side able to just like forget about having to invoice in dollars and, and hold dollars as a intermediary function. The whole corresponding banking system is no longer needing to be there. And then arguably central banks themselves don't need to hold dollars as reserves because the only reason they hold them is as a protection against their own exchange rates. So, you know, Exchange rate solutions through smart contracts and digital fiat currencies is, a, is, is something very real and feasible. And we do know the PBOC is working on a digital fiat currency. So when this idea comes forward, I would be, I'd be very surprised to think that the U.S. is not going to want to scramble to do something to, to, to address it. Uh, Atomic Swap is the name of my next album, by the way. <laughs> that is an awesome album name. That would be. That would be. Now, a word from one of our sponsors, Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on earth. Today, Preciate is recognizing a whole state legislature for a big achievement in the crypto space. The Wyoming legislature passed House Bill 70, which exempts various types of crypto assets from securities laws. Kudos to the corporate law trendsetters of Wyoming for working to clarify regulations for crypto. Listeners, if you know someone in crypto who should be recognized, take action and go to appreciate.org slash recognize. That's appreciate.org slash recognize. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol. 
designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at Quantstamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, Quantstamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. Just to go back and we'll move on to kind of like what countries are doing, especially bad actor countries. Um, but I wanted to address something earlier when you were talking about the bubble. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Telegram ICO. What do you make of that? $850 million for a white paper from a bunch of VCs, like not even from the crowd? I mean, look, Telegram is an obviously viable product. Is it something you're going to make money off of? I don't know because they're not charging any money for it right now. But it is obviously a viable product. Is $850 million an outrageous amount of money for them to raise? Uh, I don't know. They raised it. They've got it. I mean, they've got a couple hundred million people using the product. So I I think it is an awful lot of money. I think it is an eye-opening amount of money. Um, Does that on its own make it a terrible thing? Not necessarily. But what is interesting is you have a situation where this company really doesn't have to worry about making money now. They've got $850 million that they can do whatever they want. It's a no strings attached, basically. You know, again, this is this is one of the interesting sort of wrinkles of, of these token offerings. Are they investments? Are they donations? Like, what are they? Did he just get eight hundred and fifty million dollars? You know, no strings attached to do with whatever he wants. It kind of looks like that. And if that's the case, then he can keep that thing running for a very long time. It just you know, it all goes into operating capital. So, and they're going to raise more. Or they're planning to raise more. Look, it's an astounding amount of money on its face. Is it necessarily wrong? I don't know. But what is it? Is it a donation? Is it investment? If it's an investment, I got to tell you, it's a terrible investment because they have no revenue generating business. So they're, you know, you're going to lose your money on that investment um, unless you trade the tokens. And you know, and again, that's a speculative investment. I don't know. It's a lot of money, man. So I, I mean, I like to just. It is. We all think about the money. It's always about the money. How much money is being raised, right? The bigger question, and it's not one that I necessarily feel like like Telegram are answering very well, is what actually is going to be the utility of the token? How is it going to function yeah. for the purposes of it of this this uh, this platform? And it could be really interesting, right? It could be a means by which they build on top of, of Telegram, this sort of app development system, right? It might be that that's where it is. The question then is how are they going to seed those tokens amongst the right community to make it work? And if it's just being sold to these big fat cat investors, then how... And, and, and we've got concerns about how... You, whether you are under regulatory uh, structures allowed to actually, you know, move to then a public sale so that you then spread the, the network effects that you want... Um, how do we actually get to that platform? Right? How do we get to the point where this interesting functionality becomes something that's very important? I want to have the conversation focused on that. Right? For every every single time, I know that we can't avoid the right. massive amounts of money. It's it's inherently going to get all the headlines, uh, but we don't spend enough time talking about 
okay, what is the actual solution in this token? What exactly are you right. trying to no, solve? It's, it's, it's a great question. I, mean, I don't quite know it. what Messenger Two right. are going to do with it. That, that's the thing. I also worry about it being, it seems, a centralized token. I don't know. It's not an ERC-20 token. Uh, so is it they building their own decentralized blockchain, or is it going to run over their own internal platform, which is a really interesting thing. Right. You're going to give them all this money that they then have complete control over what the actual token that you own does. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I don't, so I don't know. Not... I don't know. There's been resolved what okay. the actual... I, I've not read the white paper, so... Uh, my sense of it is not that it's necessarily going to be a permissionless blockchain. Right. I think it's... Uh, I, I could oh, wow. be wrong, but I don't... No, I think that it, wasn't my I perception. Think look, I mean, look, okay, I have to... Okay. And if anyone in the room knows, you guys feel free to join in. <laughs> uh, did anyone buy uh, into the any, – any fat cats in here bought the Telegram ICO? No, I think it was no? only VCs no? or something. They must be in the other room. So the other question about this I find, uh, what are we going to do about the terms of these pre-sales? I mean – they, they are unbelievably generous to these first. Well, players. I think the rule. Well, my personal opinion is no pre-sales. It should yeah. be like no discounts. It should be you know, mm. these, if these are truly decentralized networks, it's truly public infrastructure, it's truly utility. Then it should be for the people. It shouldn't be like oh, insiders get a sweeter deal. I mean, it looks like they've tried to say oh, this is the way that the VCs work, right? And and therefore it's just modeling the old venture capital model, but. But it's not because you know the minute these things are on an exchange, you can admit you can get out, right? So there's also right. questions that should we have vesting rules and and all sorts of other things that you could work into this. I think that there's an enormous amount of work that needs to go into structuring these deals in ways that are not so harmful to you know to yeah. to the majority holders. But so does the SEC. Right. Yes, I'm sure they do. Um, Actually, talking again about the SEC, I wanted to to go back there. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask about the exchanges issue, which they sent this letter, I think, to exchanges, Mm, and we're probably going to see a lot of tokens listed. It just got me thinking about decentralized exchanges. Like, is that where all of these tokens that might be deemed securities? Is that where where they're all going to go, and are they just going to be like freely traded, or you know, or will the relayers need to become registered exchange? Like, how how do you think that will work? Uh, it, it it could end up going that way. I think it kind of shows, you know, how, how different this entire sector is from what we've had before, and it, it also raises a lot of risks. I mean, you, you know, you're going to put your money on a decentralized exchange. You, you, the ones that are centralized now, if they get screwed, you're you're out of money. Like, I think you could see. I think you look. I think you will see people attempt that. I think you will see people try to do that, and that seems like a natural outgrowth of where this is all going. I don't know if that will end up kind of achieving any large scale. I, I just don't know. But I mean, someone's going to try it, and if they can make money off it, then somebody else will try it. And I think you will have. I think you will have that at least be an attempt. I think decentralized exchanges is a wonderful idea. I mean, it would be just really cool if we get to the point where there are no more Mt. Goxes and you know that that risk is removed um, and you gain the atomic swap. I'm going to use that word again. Uh, the, the, this this function where you be know, out May 12th. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, where are you going to? Where's your first gig? No, the. Um, that that this model, I mean, there's still a lot that has to be proven out to make them work, right? So I'm not sure that we're re- ready to to do it. Um, I do hope that uh, we, we we get there, uh, just just simply for the ending of the centralized third party uh, problem. Um, but it will be very interesting from the from the point of the question you just raised as to what do regulators do about that, right? I mean, 
you know, and, and that may be where this whole thing goes. I mean, we're, we're in a kind of a bit of a cat and mouse game, really, between regulators and this sort of constantly evolving technology. Um, so, yeah, they create decentralised models that somehow no one can shut down. Then all of a sudden, these, these tokens are, are just moving in amongst, you know, dark pools and we don't know who owns them. And, and that may be the way we actually, you know, end up seeding utility because that's how you get it out in the public hands. Or not. Maybe it becomes these big whales of deep, dark, secret guys we never get to talk to. I don't know. But um, it, is, it is an interesting... But I mean, if it's fight. like... Think about the DAO, right? The DAO was the sure. decentralized autonomous organization. Yeah. They they wrote the software. They thought, oh, this is a great idea. Let's launch it. And they launched it. And they raised $150 million. And everyone's all interested. Great. And uh, immediately somebody finds a hole in the code and takes a third of it. Yeah. Like a, decentralized exchanges, a lot of the ones we have now, are, are risky places to put your money. Uh, a decentralized exchange that you don't know who built it, who wrote it, how secure it is, okay. how safe it is. But I think, I think there are a lot of questions around that. Principle versus, I agree with you in the sense that, that, that we are nowhere near ready and the Dow was a very strong indicator of the risk that we have. But I don't think we can say it's, it's it inherently is riskier. I mean, the whole point about the, the risk in, in Mt. Gox is because there is a party there that's in charge of those funds, right? You don't, you're not, well, right, there's, change, there's, you don't, there's risk either way. Right. Well, right? There, 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 there may be risk, but it's not risk about the founder or, or the, the holder with the money. You've got, you, you do retain control of your funds in a decentralized exchange. So the risks are different. That's absolutely true. But I don't know that we could sort of suggest that somehow it's, it's, it's going to be worse than what we've already got. Um, I, I, I think that we have to think about it as an, a natural evolution about where things are going to go. I think that's, it's ingrained within the way this sector wants to go. You know, to decentralize solutions, that is absolutely it. So, but we've got to get it right, obviously. So I actually want to move on to um, nation states that are bad actors. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll do that at the very end. Um, so we were talking a little bit before about things like the Petro, and obviously we've seen that you know North Korea has been trying to mine some Bitcoin. There's been talk of like Turkey and Iran issuing their own cr cryptocurrencies. Your book, and actually I think both of your books, have been largely about blockchain for social good. But here we see that these bad actors are trying to get in on it, too. Like, do you think that um, this could be a way for bad regimes to consolidate power? Is that something you guys ever worry about or have tried to investigate? I mean, I think that um, along the lines of what I said before, um, to the extent to which some elements of the technology uh, can be expropriated, buy them and used, then yes. I mean, that's what we're seeing with Venezuela. Venezuela is just trying to, you know, avoid all of its obligations, uh, which, which of course, it, in its failure to to meet, uh, ha has led to the utter impoverishment and destruction of its country. Um, and um, but they're not they're not building a cryptocurrency in a decentralized sense, right? They've taken elements of it to build a centralized solution. So. But, but yes, in that sense, there, is, there are all sorts of pieces of this technology that can be taken and used in, in, in you know, interesting ways. And certainly, you know, uh, privacy solutions uh, will be exploited by, uh, by bad actors, without a doubt. I mean, that's, that kind of goes without saying. Um, is that, does that warrant, therefore, um, sort of draconian responses in, from regulators or from anybody toward that technology? Um, you know, I think this is the nature of all technology, right? There's always good and bad uses for it, um, and I and I and I definitely 
we need to recognize that it is uh, amoral. It, it, it really doesn't have values in itself. It's just a tool, and that tool can be used by good guys and bad guys. What is the net effect of it? What is, you know, how, um, what will, where does it drive us entirely as a society? It does push toward the disintegration of barrier, of, of borders, right? At, at some point, I'm not saying tomorrow by any stretch, but, but ultimately these ideas, this concept of decentralized trust and decentralized uh, open source um, uh, transactions uh, <coughs> does break down the power of those, those nations. So, so we might get to a point where it really doesn't matter whether North Korea is you know, working on this because North Korea itself uh, will have, a, have had its power diminished by the effect of you know, how, how fluid this, this uh, economy has become. By the way, how great is it going to be the day the SEC busts Venezuela for running a scammy ICO? Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting to write that headline. So let's actually move to a new topic. Let's talk about governance. Um, this has been a big issue in Bitcoin. It's now becoming a big issue in Ethereum. Here we've got like $100 million of Ethereum that have been frozen accidentally by somebody who like randomly hit a key somewhere. Oh, that's one of my favorite screw-ups. Yeah. So, um, so there's a big debate in the community now. Like, should we, you know, freeze the money? Should we keep it frozen? Should we unfreeze it? Um, but also, like, how should we decide what to do? Um, what do you guys think about governance issues? Like, do you think there's a lot of promise in some of the on-chain governance um, solutions that are being proposed, or do you think it should continue to be sort of more in this typical like off-chain off world where people can discuss things in forums, and then there are certain leaders who decide? Like, what do you think well, later about today, these we're options? We're going to be sitting down with Kathleen Brightman from Tezos, who will have some some strong opinions yeah, on this. I'm no sure. doubt. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think. Some of the, the 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 early travails in Bitcoin, or not even early, but you know, I mean, things that have happened in Bitcoin, things that have happened in Ethereum. I think at the very least, they kind of show that there's an almost naive belief that you can just kind of write some code that is going to take care of everything. I don't think that's true. I don't think the the idea that you can kind of just write code and then get humans out of the way in in terms of governance for every issue I, that's not going to work. That's never going to work. I think you can certainly, you can write code and come up with programs and platforms and systems that are clear, but I think you will continue to see this evolve, and I think you will continue to see that there is going to be a need for some human conscious oversight of, of any system, any group, community of people. Ultimately, you are going to still have to have uh, humans, people making conscious decisions, how they come together to do that is, is up in the air. But uh, I just, I don't think you can you can completely get rid of people from any platform that is going to bring together a group of people. I don't know. I mean, there's actually a theme in the book, uh, quite a, quite a bit actually. This sort of this fact that we can't get away from the need to trust somebody or something. So, so in some respects, that's an extension of that. And I think it's an, I think, you know, as Paul said, there's always that human layer, you know, it, and, and I think it's also one of the reasons why we need federal, we're getting back to the same topic all the time, but federal regulation, because then there is a sort of a legal framework that I think, you know, is, is useful precisely for this, this issue about, okay, when things go wrong, how does it get resolved? Um, it's interesting because um, it is the human layer that has 
led to both the intransigence uh, within, on the Bitcoin side and the failure to you know, get, get governance, which some people see and we cite in the book, and I think it's a reasonable argument, as a feature, not a bug, right? That, that the, the sort of the acrimony is just a manifestation of the, of the inability to reach agreement, which then keeps through a sort of a robust, immutable system. And Ethereum, which was also you know, resolving these challenges through the human level, but had the, um, the more, you know, founder-led uh, solution that, that sort of then became very contentious for the sake of uh, whether or not they were in breach of, of the immutability uh, you know, consistency. And it's interesting because Bitcoin's uh, genesis uh, w- was such that there was no you know, godhead other than Satoshi, who we didn't know who he was, whereas we do have these identifiable figures who have a significant influence in Ethereum. And it's that issue as much as anything else that has led to the different governance solutions in those two places. Because it's quite reasonable. You could just equally imagine that Bitcoin, simply if there were five or six guys that we knew were the founders of Bitcoin, would have potentially done exactly the same things in some of these these settings as has been done with, um, you know, they could have rolled back the Mt. Gox coins or something like that. Who knows, right? Could have been similar to what what, what happened with Ethereum. So there's interesting questions about what that what that means I, on, in terms of the on-chain solutions, whether we're talking about delegated proof of stake or you know the the, 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 the various voting mechanisms and the other forms of governance that Tezos have, I think it's early days. Um, you know, what it is an attempt to bring into a blockchain what we might call a constitution, right, or a form of democracy, and you know, can they be gamed? I think there's concerns certainly about the, the Dash super nodes and these things being, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a black market in them and things like that. So, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's early days. I would like to think that some of these solutions could one day be pretty, pretty valuable. Yeah. Well, look, and I think that the goal is always to create a more perfect union, not a perfect union. I think we have to understand that we are probably never going to create a perfect union. We are just trying to do something that is better. I think this technology has the potential to allow us to do a lot of things that are better. But can they be perfect? No. Which is why you're always going to have to have people involved in them trying to help them become better. All right, so we're going to, um, we have very little time, and I had so many other interesting topics to discuss, but um, why don't we do like a panelist choice between climate change, uh, using tokens to solve climate change, and UBI, universal basic income, which would you rather talk about? I would go for climate change. Okay, let's talk okay, about that. Go. How do you guys think we can use tokens to solve climate change? There was a section in your book. Um, so this is something that sort of emerged out of conversations that um, I've had with people, and you've been present at them, I think, uh, on a certain island. Um, I, I, I think that it's not easy, but I do think that um, there's this idea of natural capital and natural currency, whereby once we've created the concept of a digital asset, we've now got a digital representation to which we can assign value. So. Right now, you know, people are talking about tokenizing real estate, for example, right? So we've now got a claim on a piece of property. This is an external thing of value. What we're talking about then is, is saying, how do you actually assign value to something that doesn't trade in the, in the free market as it is now in any case, like water resources or the quality of our air? And I think the interplay between... Um, verifiable data, because there's a lot of work being done on sort of reliable IoT, um, 
and, and, and sort of a decentralized structure to that so that China can't manipulate the data. The data becomes so ubiquitously collected through little tiny sensors everywhere and we have a, you know, a, a decentralized blockchain managed model for it. When we know that data, we can start to do very interesting things with tokens that participants in, in economies that are, are related to the particular environmental concern that you have um, will we'll then trade and own and use, right? So if we can build an economy around a token, let's say it's a coral reef and you've got the fishermen and you've got you know, an NGO and you have uh, you know, various other, you know, many different stakeholders who have a real interest in this. And if the data um, is proven to improve around that reef through this reliable you know, data source, there's things that can be done to improve the value of, of the token. So you can burn tokens that are held in reserve, reducing the supply, having this impact therefore on the, on the, on the value, and therefore align the incentives uh, with all these players uh, to, that, to that process. And the reason why I get excited about it is because I think that there's this tragedy of the commons concept that I think is, is actually an integral part of how blockchains work. The, 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 the core idea is that through this mechanism, entities who don't necessarily trust each other can be incentivized to act in the common good, even though they're acting in their self-interest, which is the interesting thing about Bitcoin, right? Because miners are mining for Bitcoin, but they're building a public ledger, which is a, which is a common good. Uh, transferring that idea to this sort of obviously more elaborate structure around uh, common resources and, and uh, environmental issues is, is an exciting concept. It's sort of obviously needs some sort of hardcore development. Another aspect of it is, is just the whole idea of the energy industry itself. And what I think is really interesting is this is where you can start to see where blockchain technology can be combined with other technologies and you can create something that is very interesting. And so, look, for basically what the entire Industrial Revolution, we have generated energy by burning oil, burning fuel, or you have centralized utilities creating it. You now have a situation, I know we're running out of time, so I won't go too long, but I mean, you, you, can, you can see a situation where you can have renewable energies, you can have renewable sources of energy, you can have, uh, which are can be broken up into, you know, the, you have these microgrids, these small solar arrays, right? Like you have solar panels on your house. You, you can have those connected, you can have microgrids, uh, an internet of things layer to it where your house is, you know, you've got your little nest thing controlling your energy. You know? And then you have a blockchain layer where people will be able to exchange energy back and forth, trade energy back and forth. You have the trust layer so that you don't necessarily have to have everything held by the utility agent, you know, the, the central PSE and G or whatever it is wherever you guys live. Um, you Con Ed, who did not store my power for a right. whole week, you know, there you go. It's just a human right. uh, experience. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting problem. way. Where when you start to talk about how renewables could be connected via, say, a blockchain-based network, and and the, the entire energy infrastructure decentralized, I, I really think that is going to be part of our future, and I think that is going to have a, a massive effect on certainly climate change, but but also just you know how, how we supply our daily lives. You know, I yeah. supply energy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's All right. really I want to end on just one last thing, which is I want to get your opinions on how the media has been covering crypto and try to make it succinct. We literally have like two minutes. Uh, great. <laughs> I think they're all doing a fantastic job. Uh, I think, t to be honest, you, you still see 
some outlets that have reporters who have been doing this for a while now and kind of understand it, and some outlets that have reporters that haven't been doing this and are still trying to get up to speed on it. You have some that see it for the potential that it really does represent and are trying to get at that, and you have others that see this as a sensationalist thing and a way to generate traffic for their websites and their, you know, and they're doing that. Which is to say that some media outlets are good and some are bad. It's always kind of been that way. Uh, I think from my personal perspective at the Wall Street Journal, we are it, it's really interesting. We're now at the point where I used to do this as a side gig to my regular job, which was markets. And because I, I was interested in this, they'd let me write about it. And Mike, when he was there, to now, this is my beat. I am the Bitcoin reporter at the Wall Street Journal. But not only that, reporters on basically every other beat are starting to become not only interested in this, but they have to report on it because the companies that they deal with are looking at it. So some of them are really interested in this and they're learning about it on their own. Some of them come to me and ask questions. Uh, it has become something that we are addressing basically on an institutional level. I mean, the Wall Street Journal covers this now. So I, I don't know. Do we have time to maybe weigh in? Because I, I, I just think yeah. that... Um, yeah, of course, weigh in. The narrative is still too focused on the wrong things. You know, it's all about the price. It's all about how quickly rich everybody's getting and how many Lambos there are out there. And that's obviously a story and it's obviously something, but we're creating this impression. And, and you know, it, 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 you certainly get people in the space as well who think that's what it's all about. The most exciting thing of all is how quickly their token, you know, went from uh, 10 to 100. Um, and, and that seems to be, unfortunately, still the dominant narrative in mainstream press. So getting underneath that, which is what we've been doing over and over again, um, you know, has been, try has been a trying and difficult process. I think Paul's right. You know, sophisticated publications are now starting to write some pretty deep, divey type uh, reports and, and are getting it. But, you know, they and the broader panoply of all these other ones as well, still, still very much focused on stuff that is only a sort of one little element of what this is all about. Yeah, and I would say sometimes when I see those articles, I think to myself, is this outlet single-handedly trying to create the crypto bubble? And right. it's very frustrating. <laughs> did you see the um, town and country uh, cover? I, I did, I did. How to spot um, a Bitcoin billionaire. Yeah. Um, one other thing I just wanted to say for the record is that I was the first mainstream reporter to cover crypto full-time, and you were the second, Paul. So right. we should do a little high-five across the table. Okay. Um, all right, thank you guys so much. This was such a great uh, conversation. Yeah, no, thanks, Laura, for having us. Yeah. And I just want to say very, very self-interestedly, uh, we'll be doing a book signing tomorrow, Room 10C at the Convention Center at 1 o'clock, 1 to one thirty. So if you're interested, and come on by. Buy We'd books, love to we'll see sign you. them, put your name on it, do whatever else, draw a little picture if you want it. Yes, uh, look at this beautiful the book. Call the Truth Machine. It's very good. Yeah. Recommend Excellent. it. <laughs> All right, see you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this special South by Southwest episode of Unchained. Thank you to the Founders Organization for hosting the initial taco offering, and thanks to everyone who attended in person. To learn more about Paul and Michael, check out the notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening.